Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. On August 29th, 2005, a class three hurricane made landfall in Louisiana and Mississippi, flooding 80% of the city of New Orleans the Gulf Coast was devastated. Angels rushed in where fools feared to tread. While the government faltered and failed, people of faith from all over the country poured into the beleaguered city. Oh, when the saints go marching in. I was so proud and so grateful that Arlington Street Church was in that number. We sent money and supplies, and then we sent people. A steady trickle of individual members and three church-sponsored relief trips and counting. We spent our vacation time in the service of people who will not get a vacation from their flood-ravaged lives for a long, long time. For the third trip, Kam and I wrangled 17 of her students to join forces with Arlington Street. In a week when they could have been on high school-sponsored trips to Greece or Argentina or any number of exotic destinations, they chose New Orleans. They returned victorious and, like us, proud and grateful. Arlington Street is a partner church to First Church, our Unitarian Universalist congregation in New Orleans. A five-person committee here coordinates the relief efforts of other partner churches. Rob Cuddy, Elizabeth Lindholm, Susie Nako, Sarah Richards, and Kate Wilkinson have poured out their hearts over the past year and a half to bring hope and healing to a congregation whose church building sat under six feet of water and whose houses were similarly flooded or destroyed altogether. I know you join me in thanking them and blessing them for their leadership out of this terrible morass. Hurricane Katrina is estimated to have been responsible for $81.2 billion of damage, but that says nothing of the minds and hearts and lives of the people who somehow lived to tell their story. As you will hear this morning, much of our work has been in gutting and rebuilding an end in itself, but also a means to help our new friends up and out of despair. Here are some of our stories. Rob is working on a series of pieces about the people he's met in New Orleans. Now he introduces us to Randy. Hey, my name is Randy. Randy Oliver, you may have guessed from my accent that I'm not from New Orleans. I'm California born and bred, a real surfer dude. 
I was driving from the West Coast to the Florida Keys to visit my grandparents after taking a semester off from Berkeley when my vet like choked as I crossed the border from Texas into Louisiana. And man, it totally died when I hit New Orleans and I didn't have the scratch to fix it. All I heard was engine trouble and like big bucks. I figured, hey, I could enjoy this New Orleans scene for a while, make some quick cash working tra tables to fix my vet, and then head to the Keys. Oh man, like, did I mention it was mid-August, 2005, a real sweat bath on the bayou, hurricane season, big time. My boss said, chill, this here's just another one of them hurricane warnings. They come and they go all the time in the Gulf, like some get downgraded to tropical storms, or they shift up the East Coast and die out by the time they hit the Carolinas. Hey, I did relax a little, but man, I didn't have the coins to leave the city anyway, let alone the state, so I just hung tight. Wow, man, what happened next sure wigged me out. The first thing that hit me was like the wind. Wind like I never heard or felt before. There was all this banging. It was the shutters. They were banging against the window. There was this banging that cut right through me. The windows, they finally smashed when the shutters blew off and the rain just kind of lashed into the room. Next, next I remember screaming. It was Tracy screaming. Tracy was in the next apartment in our rooming house, barricaded in her closet, and she was like screaming so loud. I tried to get to her, but she must have been too frightened to leave the safety of her, of her room. So I, I kept yelling, Tracy, Tracy, babe, like, are you okay? Like, open the door, babe. And then like the next thing, the next thing I remember, I got whacked in the head and there was blood everywhere and water and water like everywhere. I knew I had to get out, but I had to get to Tracy. And I'm yelling, Tracy, Tracy, babe. And then like blackness, like, like nothing. Like, man, don't ask me how, because I don't know. But, but somehow I got out. Someone helped me get through it. I don't know who. I got this deep bash in my head that, that seemed like to take for, it took forever to heal. And I had the worst headache ever. But hey, I'm still here. I stayed to figure it out, to earn some scratch, to try to find my car and my friends, and like who helped me so I could thank them and maybe find out what happened to Tracy. So thank you, man. Thank you for volunteering and coming here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for not forgetting. And thank you, man. Thank you for caring. Hi, I'm Susie. I'm not Ron or anybody. Um, the first time I traveled to New Orleans, I traveled alone. They assumed that I was coming to tell them what they needed to fix them. They assumed I was coming to Jazz Fest. Who would travel all that way and not go to Jazz Fest? I went because they asked for someone with experience in green building. I went to sit with their building and grounds people and discuss rebuilding and the hiring of architects. When I arrived at the church, I made a friend from Brooklyn named Polly. I listened to him. We walked around and talked. We brainstormed. 
I entered the shocked world of where he had been for the past month. We were both outsiders, yet we would become part of their community. I met many different people in a short amount of time, different ages, sizes, and gender, with the same troubling look in their eyes. It was eight months after the storm, and the effects on the people were as blaring as the damage to the buildings. They had seen enough, and they were tired. I sat and listened. It was all I could do. I reinforced their ideas. I encouraged them to dream. There didn't seem to be anything else left beyond dreaming. I didn't sleep during that trip. I was deeply affected by what I heard and saw. The look in everyone's eyes, they were extremely raw. Their hearts were wide open, their wounds still bleeding. I felt helpless. The morning after I arrived, I went for a walk and felt the heat building by seven. I worked until 12 when the board president came to see me. She had come to check me out. She had a striking presence about her. She sat down, and although her manner was gentle, she was direct and firm. She told me that they wouldn't be beholden to anyone. No one should tell them what to do, to move away, to give up, and no one should try and save them. That if another storm wiped them out tomorrow, they would rebuild. If they had to be an island, that's how they would exist. And then she asked me, why are you here? I sat very still with a long silence. I felt transparent. I swear she could look into me. I hadn't anticipated this question or the feelings I would have around it. I'm simply an architect. From the moment I arrived in New Orleans, I realized there was nothing anyone could do to fix things. We can help them rebuild, but their loss is nothing we can change. I told her I was there because I felt ashamed. I told her I was there for me. I told her I wanted to walk with them. I handed her my heart. She handed her heart to me. These reflections were written by my students, Ben Lang and Eliza Miller, both 17 years old, in a blog we kept of our time in New Orleans. Ben. One of the most important things is how we really came together as a community. I was shoveling plaster into a bucket to carry outside to our pile of debris. I felt overwhelmed with a huge amount of plaster, and I was filling bucket after heavy bucket and carrying them outside. Then, wordlessly, I was joined by a troop of helpers. We only talked when it was really necessary, and soon the job was done. Thanks seemed to be in order, but before I could say anything, the group had moved on to work in another spot. I joined them with gusto. I was so proud of my fellow workers the entire trip. Everyone worked with a fiery passion that I didn't expect. I never could have worked as hard as I did without giving up hope if I wasn't surrounded by such a determined and selfless group. Anyone who got hurt was clamoring to get back to work within minutes, and no one slacked off. At the beginning of each day, it was easy to see that everyone was excited for another day of work. One of the most important things was the respect we showed for the places we worked on. When we started work, I was worried how I could tear a house apart while still thinking of it as someone's home. But while we were working, even during the most destructive tasks such as plaster removal, it never felt like demolition. It was always calm, and the room was always filled with an aura of respect and even sadness for the home we were taking apart. We did our best to understand the pain of the victims of Katrina, and it helped us work far beyond our potential. Eliza. 
Today we worked on Miss Doris's house and made our way into the back rooms since we only had time for the first three and a half rooms the first day. Eventually we had every wall taken down and then started in on the door frames and the very stubborn chicken wire. I was mostly cleaning the floors, sweeping, shoveling, and carrying the plaster and slats down the front steps in a wheelbarrow. Kim stood up holding a thimble in her hand. She told me to go ask Miss Doris to see if she wanted to keep it, since you never know what holds some sentimental value. I walked outside around the house to her FEMA trailer and asked. She smiled and said, no, you guys can keep it, although she seemed hesitant. So I slipped it into my pocket and forgot that it was there. When we eventually got back to St. Timothy's, where we were sleeping, I took it out of my pocket and just turned it over in my hand. It's hard to put into words the conflicting feelings I felt holding even such a small thing like a thimble. To me, it represented what having a home truly means. It's not just a place where you live. It's a comfort, a safety. This one little object just showed the life that used to be in that house, but that's why it's so important, what used to be in the house. It also showed the tremendous loss that some people had to suffer. It was multiple days' work just getting the walls out, but imagine how many houses are on one street, in one town. Through my work, I can't help but realize how physically difficult gutting a house is. But this thimble showed the other side, the emotional side, not the property, but the lives that were damaged. I went to New Orleans and I painted this guy's house. How was it, people in Boston wanted to know. It's bad there, like it just happened. All I did, though, was I painted this guy Reese's house. A group of us at church painted for three days straight, 18 months after the hurricane. This is what had been done before to his house. The house had been hydraulically raised up six feet two feet every, every few weeks. There was new plumbing and all new sheetrock, and what was still to do? New floors, new windows, tile, doors. Reese still had his job, and he was crammed in a friend's apartment. I was living in a hotel, and after just a week, that displaced feeling kicked in, and I was ready to be back at my house. He was on his friend's couch now 18 months. They were really getting on each other's nerves. He would go to work, and then after work, and on weekends, he was working on his house so he could get back home. All I did was I primed some of the walls and ceilings and painted them, and I painted one room peach and another room a violet gray. As I steadied my hand to paint the line where the wall connects the ceiling, I touched the wall in ownership. Part of me is in Reese's house now, and those colors are burned in my eyes. They say there were 500,000 people living in New Orleans when the storm hit. Now there are fewer than 200,000. It took a bunch of us three days just to paint Reese's house. It looked like there were 200,000 houses left to go. The line from Adrian Rich's poem, my heart is moved by all I cannot save. But the line in my own heart was, I have to turn away in despair 
in the face of how little I can save. The first family had moved back to the Lower Ninth Ward just before we got there. A neighborhood of tiny, orderly houses with yards and porches on straight streets. Doors cocked open to caved-in walls and dangling light fixtures. Picture frames lying on empty slabs. On one house, the carefully placed masking tape, now curling in the heat, in X's on the tiny window panes. I thought of the hope there as the storm was coming, someone putting the masking tape on those little windows, and then the futility of that masking tape against the wind and the wall of water that came later. I started to cry. How do any of us find the will to go on? I came back to Boston, my heart devastated. How futile am I, just a small person, masking tape against a wall of water? I was one of a bunch of people who painted a guy's house. It took three days. But I reread the message of that masking tape on the tiny window panes. You know, the X's had worked. The windows had survived. The whole house had survived. And someday, maybe someone will be back there to live. I just helped paint a guy's house but a piece of my heart stayed back on all those walls. There are 200,000 houses left to go. I did only what I could, and it felt like it didn't matter, but it did matter to Reese. On my third trip to New Orleans, we finally had a whole day off simply to enjoy the city. We, a van full of women, were giddy as we left a collection of impressionist paintings of women on loan to New Orleans by museums all over France. We chanted, femme, 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 as a very patient Jim Vogel drove us to the next stop on our journey, a healing labyrinth built after the hurricanes. I have always dreamed of walking a labyrinth, and as we drove, I envisioned high brick walls and rows of shrubs. Unfortunately, we seemed stuck in an unintended maze of New Orleans streets as we struggled to find our way. When we finally saw the sign for the labyrinth, we burst out of the van as one, and our eyes scanned the park, our spirits falling as they finally rested on a small, flat, brick-and-concrete design inlaid in the pavement. This was it. Trying not to look as disheartened as I felt, I approached the brick design. We had come all this way, and I might as well walk the labyrinth such that it was. I can't even begin to tell you the transformation that took place on that walk. The path wound around and around, taking forever to trace, foot over foot. 
The healing energy of the labyrinth was palpable, culminating at the center in a cloverleaf design, where I stood, arms outstretched, for what seemed like hours. Others joined me, and they too reached out their arms instinctively, like we were all being embraced by the healing energy of that labyrinth. I hadn't even realized how much I needed that. A man in a suit and tie made his way in as I made my way out, and I could only hope that on the journey he would find what I had found, deep peace and healing. Before leaving the park, we got together as a group and cried and prayed and spoke about our experience of walking the labyrinth. It was hard to put into words. When I got back to Boston, I tried again. This is what I wrote. The Healing Labyrinth. Somehow we know, without being told, how to navigate this labyrinth. It's a familiar path to us, this universal path of grief. We slowly wind ourselves towards the center, losing ourselves in the task, tuning in and out to the world around us, steady on our course of tearfulness and longing. Others walk with us, and yet our wandering is solitary, circling in and out, taking our time to reach the center. Instinctively, we know we must stay there for a while, sit with our grief, allow it to wash over us, fill us up, empty us out. Allow ourselves to absorb the strength to start the journey again, digging ourselves out, hammering our way out, building our way out, walking the path of grief again in reverse. We slowly spiral toward the edge so many times feeling it must be the end and then being drawn back in towards the center. We feel the grace of but find no shortcuts to this journey. And so we continue on the path of healing, deferring to others as they make their way in, circling towards the center of their grief as we make our way out of our own. Our hearts somehow mended by the labyrinth, the path we have all walked together. I'll give the last word to 17-year-old Ben Lang. He writes, I hope everyone who hears about our adventure will take the next step and volunteer volunteer in some way to help the victims of Katrina. We know from speaking to them that they feel like a country has forgotten them, and each day that passes chips away a little bit at their hopes for recovery. I miss New Orleans already. I miss doing service for the people who desperately need our help. I miss the feeling of community that we established on our trip. I think we have accomplished something much greater than ourselves my spiritual companions. May we, the beloved community of memory and hope, join hearts and minds and hands to accomplish 
something much greater than ourselves. The service begins when the service ends. Amen.